Today in the Lazy RPG Talk Show, there is a seems to be a sale on various D&D books going on on Amazon, maybe for Prime subscribers. We're going to look at that, including one of my favorite books is available for very, very low. We're going to talk about what we actually need from Wizards of the Coast when it comes to D&D. When we look at what Wizards is doing with D&D in 2024, how much does that really matter? Where does it matter? What does it mean for us as GMs? What does it mean for the TTRPG community overall? And trying to set our baseline expectations of what we can expect and what we can do about it. We're going to talk about running monsters and dynamic situations. Instead of having sort of creatures that are set and assigned to one particular room, what if you have a whole bunch of monsters over a whole big area and you as a GM have to figure out how these creatures react to what the characters are doing in any given situation? We're going to dig into that. And we're going to cover more questions from the October 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a ton of different features, including the City of Arches sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, a bunch of exclusive adventures, the monthly Q&A, and a whole bunch more. It's very low cost to sign up, but most and most importantly, it helps me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. So this past week, I got word that there were some crazy good deals going on on various D&D books. And the one that caught my eye was Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which is my probably my favorite book that Wizards has produced over the last couple of years. It is an outstanding book with a ton of material you can use to help build your own adventures, your own campaigns. You can mix it in with other worlds. You can, you know, I used it as uh, side by side with Wild Beyond the Witchlight to create these things called Dreadful Incursions. It's just an outstanding product. And when I picked it up, it was $12 on Amazon. I was able to pick it up with two day delivery through Prime for 12 bucks. I bought two copies. I already have it. I have the special edition cover, but I bought two other ones because I'll just give them away. I'll just find friends of mine that don't have it or think, you know, and I'll, I'll, I just, I'm like 12 bucks. It's crazy. It's a 50, $60 book and it's selling for $12. So it's still on sale. The price seems to be changing. I don't know how it's all working. The prices seem to be changing. It's now $16.50, but you can still get it for very, very low. Other books are also on sale too. Waterdeep Dragon Heist is on sale for 15 bucks. Is it worth 15 bucks? It's a good adventure. It's not bad. You know, it's, it's okay. It's kind of in the middle of the pack as far as adventures go for, that I've run. But you can get a lot of material from it. You get the Gazetteer for Waterdeep. You have a whole bunch of different things that you could harvest for your own adventures if you want. And with a little bit of wrangling, you can make Waterdeep Dragon Heist an excellent, fun adventure. So the fact that that's 15 bucks for a hardcover, big, thick adventure is really good. The player's handbook, the core books themselves seem to be going for like this, the typical 20, 30 bucks, but I have seen those dip very low. I've seen the player's handbook go down to $19, which is really, 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 really low. And as we get into the holiday season, when we start to get into November and December, we're going to see even bigger deals going on out of wide variety of books. This is a great time to fill out your library. Good chance to go through and really kind of find which of the Wizards of the Coast published D&D books are really, really good and grab those. I would be looking particularly at Eberron. I think that's really good. One book that I always feel um, is under 
and I'll tell you why it's underappreciated, is the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. This really gets a bad, has a bad reputation. And I think why is that it wasn't the strongest character-driven book, and it wasn't a Forgotten Realms campaign setting guide. I think that's because people don't recognize what this book actually is. And what this book actually is, is a player's guide to the Sword Coast. It is intended to be a book that players can read to understand the Sword Coast. You could, for example, run um, Storm King's Thunder or Tyranny of Dragons, and the players can use this guide. And they can use this guide as a sort of atlas to decide what locations they want to go to or what they know about it. It is a spoiler-free, deep description of the areas of the Sword Coast. And most of the time, it's treated as a campaign source book for GMs. Now, GMs can certainly use it. And there's lots of ideas in here. There's lots of things you can pick up in here that you can use for your own adventures. It was one of the first book hosts put out for 5th edition. It came out in 2015. So it's an eight-year-old book. It is still, I think, a pretty good book. And 20 bucks, not bad. I would, if I were running games regularly in the Forgotten Realms, I, I own multiple copies of it. And I, if I were running games in the Sword Coast, like Storm King's Thunder or like Tyranny of Dragons, I would definitely pick up this book because it fills in a lot of interesting locations. And I would recommend that my players, if they're really interested, pick up this book because it's a great way to get an understanding of the Sword Coast of the Forgotten Realms in a way that doesn't spoil adventures that you're going to run there. So, so I, I do, I do recommend it. Anyway, other books are on, I mean, books are always on sale on Amazon. $26 for the player's handbook, which is a very, very low price. But I've seen that dip below 20 in some circumstances. So a lot of different books that are on sale. Good chance to kind of fill in your library. And I think, I think a good a good opportunity and i think we're going to keep seeing this going in the future over on n world there was an article and i think it, it got picked up by a, a few different uh few different groups that said that wizards of the coast is no longer using penguin random house to distribute wizards of the coast books and we don't really know what this means there's you know i, I don't think it means anything really tremendously big for the industry it mostly is just saying hey we're going to be using our own internal distributor the wpn to distribute books F friendly local game shops are going to get it other book title places are going to get it it's still going to be available in different places but one of the rumors is that this is going to affect how uh, wizards of the coast books are published on amazon and that they might have more control over that which is means it's possible I don't know if this is true, and let's look back in a year and find out. These may be the lowest prices we ever see on these books, because it's possible when Wizards picks up their own prices, they're not going to want to go through and do these super deep discounts that Penguin Random House was willing to do in order to move product through. So we'll see sales and stuff like that. But that idea of getting like Van Richten's Guide for $12, you may not see that again. So these may be the lowest prices we ever see on Wizards of the Coast books. Uh, I don't really know. I, you know, A lot of the details of this is hard to figure out. And it's hard to know exactly what's going to happen with sales in the future. But we know that Wizards is very interested in being direct sales and they're doing sales of their books on D&D Beyond and things like that. So things could go. But sometimes these prices, we know that it costs them more to print the books than the, the price that we're paying for. Like Van Richten's Guide for $12. I don't know that the, that's really close to a print price. <laughs> it's really outstanding. Anyway, you should probably pick up Van Richten's Guide for 16 bucks if you don't have it because it's a really good deal. Over this past couple of weeks, I think the, the whole topic of Bastions in the playtest, I think, got this conversation started. And I've had multiple conversations with, with my patrons, Cyflares patrons, with friends of mine, other designers that I've talked to about this, other friends of mine. Hey, John, my friend John sent me an email about this. And we've 
there's there's a lot of talk about what this kind of thing means and how we feel about it. And the interesting thing is comments on the video that I did last week where I talked about the Bastion system seem to be, I didn't do a data analysis of it, but about 50, about half of people said, no, the Bastion system is great and we should have it. And another half are like, this is terrible and I hate it. So there, there seemed to be a, a, a good mix of people who were eager for the Bastion system or people who also felt the way I did that that seems like a high page count for something that hopefully you could fit into a smaller number of pages. And there may be other things we would want to have in the DMG other than that. I don't know. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. But what I can tell you is I'm generally not worried. And it's not that I'm not worried because I know what direction they're going to go. It's because I know that whatever direction they choose, things are probably going to be just fine. And that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit right now, is that when it comes to what Wizards of the Coast and, and decides to do with D&D, what effect does that have on this hobby that we love for game masters in particular right for those of us who are running games who are bringing groups of people together to play games what how does it affect us and what does it mean and i think there are a few things that i I don't i don't have an answer exactly but i think there are some considerations that we may want to keep in mind while we're thinking about this topic So when I think about it, I started with the premise of the question, what do we need from Wizards of the Coast when it comes to D&D? What do we really want from them? What do we feel a drive for them to do? And then how much does the stuff that they do really matter to the hobby or not? So to give an example, when I think about what we, what I really want is I want to see the game continue to grow and thrive. I want to see more people playing it. I want to see more GMs that are running the game. I don't care if they stick to D&D, but I want them to come in. And D&D seems like the easy on-ramp. It seems like the clear on-ramp to get into the world of TTRPGs. And I'm totally happy if people grab D&D and run with it and stay with D&D and never even think about anything else. I'm also equally happy if they're immediately dissatisfied, but they go and they pick up another RPG and they play that. I'm totally happy with either of those things. I want the hobby to grow. I want to watch more GMs playing the game. I want to watch more groups getting together. I think it's really important to the world. I think it offers a tremendous value uh, in this world, and I want to see it continue to grow. So when I think about what wizards can do for that, it's like there's really only two product types that matter for that. One is the starter set. Having a good starter set that's out there, that's in Walmart, that's in Target, that's easy to buy, that's low price point, that you can find anywhere, and that it's easy for somebody to say, you want to get started with D&D, buy this box. It has everything you need. It has adventures. It has characters. It has dice. It gives you instructions on how to play, and you're able to play it and run it and enjoy the game and, and see what the game is able to offer. I feel like getting the starter set right for a bunch of reasons is the most important thing that Wizards of the Coast can do. And I'm glad to say that the start the starter sets that have come out, the original Green Dragon starter set that included Lost Mine of Fandelver, the D&D Essentials kit, which is a fantastic value when sometimes you can get that for $12 and that has tons of stuff in it. It is, it is an amazing package for, for $12 bucks. And, and also an outstanding adventure. And the most recent one, the one that has the blue dragon on the cover and has the adventure Dragons of Stormwreck Isle, 
and particularly that last one, Dragons of Stormwreck Isles, a really, really good starter adventure. That is one that I would definitely recommend for new DMs that are running the game. It's easy to run. Your characters won't all get killed. It shows you a lot about what's going on with D&D. It's got cool lore, pre-gen characters. It's, it's really, really good. I feel like it's most important for Wizards of the Coast to get starter sets right because I have a feeling that new groups that are just getting into it are probably going to start with a starter set more than they would start with any other book. Maybe they get a Dungeon Master's Guide or Player's Handbook or Monster Manual, but think about the price difference. It's 10 times higher in cost to get the the three core books than it is to get a starter set, generally speaking, right? So I really feel like getting the starter set right is critical for Wizards of the Coast to bring new people into the game. Then I think the next set of books that's most important are the core books, the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. Those books have to be good enough to get people to play the game and enjoy the game and want to stick with it and want to go through. They don't need to be perfect. They don't have to be perfectly aligned or else they the people will stop playing. They have to do enough to get people to play the game and keep playing the game. And if they do that, if they accomplish that, they're good enough. And we know this because if you think about it, D&D is five times more popular, roughly. I'm making, making numbers up a little bit, but I don't think I'm that far off. D&D are five, D&D is five times more popular than it had ever been in the history of the game. And many people have said that the Dungeon Master's Guide for 5th Edition is very is, is bad. I don't think it's bad. I think it's poorly organized. I think actually the Dungeon Master's Guide is pretty good. It's missing some things, particularly like helping new players learn how to play the game. But I know that wasn't in the design, right? The design of it was you're, you have an expectation that you already know how to play because you played the starter set. But still, it starts off with like com- gold and theology, right? How to make a pantheon and then how com- how coins work, you know, how to set up a monetary system in your game. It wasn't exactly helpful in its organization. But a lot of the material in it's really good. That, I think, is another undervalued book. Uh, the random tables that are exist in the DMG in particular, I think, are really, really good. Um, so, but even with that flawed DMG, which you would think, wow, well, DMs are the ones that are going to be focusing most on this game. And that is the book that is focused on GMing. And it's not great in bringing people in. And yet it still grew five times as much, which means it doesn't need to be perfect. If whatever issues you think the core 2014 player's handbook has have not gotten in the way of the game being as popular as it is. So if you're one of the people that feels like the Marshall versus caster imbalance is terrible for the game and causing all kinds of problems, I argue if it was really that terrible, people wouldn't be playing it. Uh, Likewise, uh, if so you say, wow, all the I like 5th edition, but the monsters are totally boring. I won't name any names. But if you think the monsters are totally boring and nobody ever wants to run these monsters, I have news for you. Five times more popular than any other than any other time in the world of D&D. Are they boring? That's up to you. But they're not so boring that people aren't running them. And they're not so boring that people aren't playing the game and enjoying it. So that gets into the question of how important are the details of the rules to the growth of D&D. I'm not saying they're not important, but I think that as long as they're not getting in the way of, a, of people getting to play, they're probably good enough. And uh, I think that's the best expectation we can have is that they're good enough. I, I think the when, when you think about the 2024 books that are coming out, this gets into people's angst about what they're seeing with play tests, what they hear when they watch the videos, and when that that diverges from what they want from the game. People like me, where I look at it and I say, you know, oh, wow, I love what you did exhaustion. Wait, you took exhaustion away. Why did you take the cool exhaustion rules away? Oh, that's terrible. Bastion systems. Why do we have this new point system for Bastions? It's the worst thing ever. I didn't really say that, right? But 
you know, we get those of us who are really deep into the game who are thinking like putting on our spectacles and really digging into the details of the game and we worry about what the effect is going to be. I'm not sure the effect is going to be that bad. I think they would have to do a lot of work to really change it. And an example would be what happened between the third edition of D&D and the fourth edition of D&D. That D&D 3.5 was one direction that the game took and fourth edition was a totally different direction. It was radically different. None of the products were compatible. You couldn't take stuff from 3.5 and run it with 4E. You couldn't take a monster book from 3.5 and run it with 4E. Totally different system. And fractured the community enough that a whole other company grew up staying with 3.5. This is Paizo and Pathfinder said, we're going to keep going with that direction. And 4E went the direction it went. Now it was also at a very different time where it was really at a low point for the popularity of D and D overall period. We are not in a low point. We are in a, you know, Teos looking at sales say they look like they've definitely leveled off. Right. But it's not diving. It's not like we have five times fewer people playing D&D now than we're playing it before. And you can't have five times growth continuing until like the whole planet would be doing it in six months. So we're at a different point. So it's not an apt comparison to look at it between 3.5 and 4E. But I think what is apt is that they decided to go in a radically different direction with D&D when they went to fourth edition. Some people really loved it. I played it and loved it for a long time. I definitely had problems with it and I was definitely happy to go back to, to go back to or go to fifth edition when fifth edition came out. Other people still miss it and they look at fourth edition and say, God, there's so many great things with fourth edition. I wish we could continue to do. There are other groups who are like, we're still playing for you. So there's definitely people that like it, but you, you know, I think However you feel, it's clearly different, right? Fourth edition is definitely different than any other version of D&D. Where fifth edition, you can see a lot of its connection points back to second edition, third edition, fourth edition. You can see that it kind of reached and brought in these other components to it. And we know that the 2024 books are staying pretty close to the 2014 books, at least in that, as, as Wizards describes it, they're going to be compatible, that you could take subclasses from one group and use it with another, that monsters will still work. They might change some of the design ideas. They might freshen some things up. They might add different subclasses. They might come up with new tech or whatever. But generally speaking, it looks like it's going to be pretty much the same. The math curve is going to be the same. The power curve is going to be the same. We're going to see a lot of the same kind of stuff, which we Means it's not going to be that different and that means if it's not going to be that different whether or not it is significantly better or significantly worse it's probably not going to have that big an effect on whether or not new people are coming into the game or not right it's not like people are not going to know there's other things wizards could do that would damage the ability for new people to get into the game and I don't think, you know, I, I, I expect if we look at what they're doing with the 2024 books from the, from the play tests and we think about it, I like to say, you know, we have sort of a probability bell curve and on one side it is, it's going to be a complete disaster. And on the other side of that bell curve, probability bell curve is it's going to be five times better than the version that we had with 2024 or 2014, right? It's going to be just way, everyone's going to look like a ha, oh, so much better. Oh, this is so much greater. Those are on the far extreme ends of the likelihood. And I don't think either of those are likely. I would, I would, I would heavily bet against either of those two things happening. I would probably bet more that there are going to be some changes that are pretty cool. There's also going to be some changes that are probably not great. 
from and each of us are going to decide what those are you might decide i don't like how they're handling uh, ancestry and species in the new one i liked it the old way with races or you might say i like the old spellcasting monsters the way they did i don't know if there's many people who like the old spellcasting monsters but other people go well i really like how the new monsters have all of their all of the, the the chunkiness of their effectiveness is in the stat block and i don't have to go reference a player's handbook to go find out what every spell does when i want to run a mage effectively so there's lots of things that they're probably going to do where you go oh yeah that's definitely better and there's some things you go eh, that's not great and we might say yeah they wasted 20 pages of the dungeon master's got on a bastion system that nobody uses but that's not and i'm not saying that's going to happen it could be wow they put 20 pages of the bastion system and it's awesome bastions are so much better than what, everything else we ever had it's possible there's going to be things we're going to like, and there's going to be things that we don't. There's going to be things I like that you don't like. There's going to be things that I don't like that you do. We're all going to have different feelings about what this, how this goes. I seriously doubt if we were fans of 5th edition, we really liked 5th edition, I doubt there's going to be things that they are going to do with the core books that are so extreme and divergent that we say, you know what, I don't even want to play 5th edition anymore. Maybe I don't even want to play TTRPGs anymore. I'm going to go and just, you know... I don't know, play Marvel Snap, that what do you, you know, what would have to happen for that to be that extreme? And the answer is a whole lot, and it's not likely. So that means whatever they do with the core books, I think they'll be fine, right? I think there'll be stuff we like, there'll be stuff we don't like, but I don't think it's going to have a massive effect on how well people join the game or not, or new people joining the game or not. I think the things that are going to get people to jump in and play the game have less to do with the specific rules that are in the book and more to do with circumstance and marketing. Circumstance would be a new Stranger Things season that puts another highlight on Dungeons and Dragons again, or another big pop culture reference that decides that they want to talk about Dungeons and Dragons again. Seeing more people you know vin diesel playing DD, more you know interest continuing and growing interest in critical role other cartoon series baloney who knows but i think DD getting out into the pop culture is going to have a bigger effect on people coming to the game than the specific instances of the rules that are in the game unless it's just unplayable and what's the likelihood of it being unplayable not in my opinion not very likely i don't i don't think people are going to pick up the 2024 player's handbook and dungeon master's guide and monster manual and find them so much harder to use effectively and for the fun of the game than the 2014 ones did i don't think that's very likely i think they'll probably be fine right and so i i think that's where my headspace is and if people ask me people have asked me what do you feel about that how do you do you, is it are we are we aiming for disaster i say no i don't think so and I honestly am not that worried about it. When I look at the things that go on in the play tests, I tend not to worry about it that much. I joke that if they can't fix the poison immunity in Heroes Feast, you know, it's time for me to go play Marvel Snap instead of playing D&D. That's not really true. I could just say it's resistance like it should be. But I think that we're all going to have like specific things. Those of us who are deep into the game, if you're watching this show, you're probably deep into the game, right? I don't think we have many people that are just kind of casual surfing through youtube and run into this i think we're all thinking a lot about it i think we look at the play tests when they come out we read forum stuff stuff about it we discuss it with friends we discuss it online and we have a lot of deep thoughts and it's hard for us to step back and look at the things like bob world builder did which is that the popularity of D is almost directly proportional to stranger things right he he showed there's a good video you'll find it in the show notes that he did this great video that showed that there was a direct correlation between the growth and popularity of stranger things and the growth and popularity of D&D. 
that that alone had a huge effect. And he did it in a predictable way. What was really interesting about what Bob World Builder did is he, it's one thing to draw a correlation, right? Because we know correlation is not causal. It's something else to look at the correlation and say, therefore, based on this correlation, I bet that I can predict the next part. And before season four of Stranger Things hit, he predicted there would be another surge in the search history for Dungeons and Dragons. And he was correct. He then came back and said, turns out the new episode, new episodes hit Netflix and there was an immediate rise in searches for D&D and D&D related IP like Vecna, which is not out of hand. That makes sense. But I bet you that 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 leading people to go buy a starter set or leading people to go buy the core books and learn how to play D&D has a bigger effect on whether or not people come to D&D and maybe stay with D&D than the intricacies of the rules that come out. So that's one thing. I think another another piece is that, in my opinion, and I, 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 I've argued about this with friends of mine as well, I don't think the other products that Wizards put out matter that much. Because I don't think those are the products that bring people into the hobby. They're already in the hobby once they start looking at these products. So I've talked on the show that I get bothered when Wizards of the Coast puts out products around IP that they own and those products don't hit the mark. And Spelljammer was the one that I brought up often that I felt like Spelljammer was this bit of IP that Wizards has had for 30 or year, more than 30 years. And then they put out a single box set. That was probably the only box set we're going to see, the only product we may see for Spelljammer. And it wasn't great. It didn't actually have a campaign guide in it. And I felt like when, you know, those of us who are fans of some of these pieces of IP and want to see them do well by it, they're the only one that can. And when they fail that, then we are let down. I have good news. I'm, I'm going to talk about the Planescape box set. I have access to the Planescape material through D&D Beyond already, and I spent some time reading it, and I'm going to do a deeper spotlight on it. But what I will say, it's definitely better than Spelljammer. It actually has a campaign source book. It's got a 96-page campaign source book, 80 pages of which are true, honest-to-God, source book-level material. Really good stuff. It's also got a longer adventure that lets you explore all of the different locations that are kind of described in the Planescape setting, a lot of time spent in Sigil, a lot of time spent in the Outlands. So that looks really good too. So from what I read, I like it. I, I definitely have some qualifications. There were some parts of it that I looked at and went, eh, that's not how I would have done it. But I think everybody's going to have stuff like that. But it's definitely a stronger product than the Spelljammer product was in my mind and from my initial look. But we'll talk about that some other time. When it comes to the other products that Wizards puts out, I just don't think they matter that much. I don't think that they have as big an effect on the TTRBG hobby that if a product comes out and it does really well, that that will bring a lot of new people into the hobby. Or if they put out a product that does really poorly, that that will have a detrimental effect on the hobby, any more so than any other publisher. And, you know, examples of that. So they put out the Shattered Obelisk, the new Fandelver book. It looks really cool. I haven't dug into that. I have a copy sitting on my shelf behind me. And I want to look into it. How well that book does doesn't move the meter very much at all, if at all, on how TTRPGs are doing. All of the individual stuff doesn't. Now, some of the player-focused material, like your Tasha's and your Xanathar's guides, I think if they blow one of those, that could have a detrimental effect on the hobby. Not huge, but it will, it'll move the needle. And if they do one that's really good, like Xanathar's Guide. Xanathar's Guide was a really, really excellent book. Xanathar's Guide, I think, can move the needle in the positive direction because it keeps people playing. It sort of bounces them to the next wave because there's now enough material that they have lots of different subclasses that they can 
and play. They have lots of different material and it's coming from the core publisher of the game, which seems to get a lot more play than third party publishers or other fifth edition publishers putting out supplementary subclass stuff, which is a bummer because I, I would love to see other 5e publishers who are publishing subclasses. I'd love to see their stuff get used more and that that can bounce the hobby. And I'd like your help, right? You as a GM, all of us, I think, can do a lot more to bring in other 5e publishers to our table so that we can enjoy the game in lots of different ways, in lots of different directions, and not count on Wizards of the Coast to drive our happiness with D&D, which is something I've always talked about, right? Don't let Wizards of the Coast drive your happiness with the TTRPG hobby, right? Instead, find the parts of the TTRPG hobby that you can hang on to, that you have control over, and that you can dictate. And then... Wizards of the Coast becomes one of the many different fifth edition publishers that are publishing products, many times outstanding products that we can then bring to the table and use to build our game. It's our game, not their game. It's our game, our game at the table. We're the one running it. We get to choose which sources we use. We get to choose what house rules we put in play. We get to choose what sources we limit it from or what focused set we bring it on. There's lots of different things we can do to tune our own game to be the kind of game that we want to run with our friends. So... Anyway, so I thought that that was an important conversation to help people get their hands around what all of these changes in 2024 mean. Obviously, we're all paying, you know, I don't know about all of us. I am, and many people I know are paying a lot of attention to what Wizards of the Coast puts out. I am happy that they've been putting out playtest material. I'm happy they've been changing things based on the results that they've seen. So far, I haven't seen anything so egregious that I'm like, they're killing D&D. I do not feel that way at all. And I think very likely they're going to get it in the middle. There is this question of, is it going to be that much better than the 2014 books? I'm not so sure. And I know lots of people that are going to be like, ah, the 2014 books are fine. So they're, they are their own worst competitor when it comes to this. But we're going to have to see when they come out. And reality is we only have whatever influence we have anyway. So, so a lot of us are going to be sitting floating on the lazy river of life to see what direction and what path it takes us. So another topic I wanted to talk about today, this is definitely more of a DM tip focused uh, how can we actually make our games better looking at a particular thing and looking at a particular activity that occurs in our game? And we're going to talk about running monsters in dynamic situations. So I'm going to create a false dichotomy of dungeon crawls versus dynamic situations. A dungeon crawl is a type of event. These aren't the only types of adventures. There's other ones, but I'm going to focus on these on these two. And one of them is a dungeon crawl is you're going from room to room. You're making choices about what direction you go. You might encounter a group in one particular area of the dungeon. You might do some stuff there, manipulate, then you kind of go on to the next room and start crawling from room to room, figuring out what's going on. You generally don't know what the layout is like, so you don't have one path. You're making your choice about what path you go. You have a lot of things like who's going up front. You have a lot of thing about is anybody getting surprised? You usually the chambers of the room are independent from the other ones. Every so often, something you do in one chamber might affect something in another chamber like guards become alert to your presence or whatever but generally speaking you're focused on whatever's in that chamber then you go on to the next chamber and deal with it situations are different i like to think of situations as being like a heist you generally know what the layout of the location is like not always or maybe not all of it but generally speaking you know what this thing is you're in going into a manor and you're trying to recover a prisoner who's being kept up in the attic or something like that you have inhabitants of that location but the inhabitants can be moving around they can be doing different things and some of them are villains maybe some of them aren't villains so maybe you have the guards who are keeping the, the hostage held held up in the attic and other guardians that are going around the house but then you also have a serving staff who really aren't involved in the person and they don't necessarily they're not necessarily going to attack but you have inhabitants of those situation you have you know, you have the goal, 
you have the inhabitants, you have the location itself, like this old creepy manor with many different floors. And again, maybe you know about all of it. Maybe some like the subcellars you don't know about, the secret tunnels and the subcellars you don't know about them. And you might have some complications. What are the what are the ways that this thing might go or what are complications that could occur that change up the environment once the characters go in? And that's because if you if you don't have a complication, then the players will come together with their plan and then start to enact their plan. And maybe it just works exactly as they plan. That's not super exciting. You want usually something in there to kind of change things up so that they have to they have to change their approach so i'm calling these like dynamic situations you could call them just situations you could call them heists even though it's not always about stealing something they're just these sort of situations where you have a clear goal you have a clear location where it's taking place where the characters tend to know what's going on there you have a bunch of inhabitants that are kind of moving around from place to place and you have these complications so one of the tricky bits with this is knowing as a GM how the creatures should be reacting, particularly hostile creatures, but maybe not even hostile creatures, how they should be reacting to the ongoing situation that's occurring. And the reason why that is kind of a tricky thing to handle is because you don't necessarily know the approach that the characters are going to take. So I wanted to look at one of these situations and kind of use it as an example for how to think about this kind of thing. So in my Empire of the Ghouls game, there is a ghoulish warship called the Phantom. And the Phantom was run by a bunch of Darakul, and they were using it to bring a bunch of humanoid prisoners over to the pure city of Vandakul, where they are going to be eaten, because they are ghouls after all. So they're, they're piling on a bunch of prisoners onto this boat. They are charming them using a, uh, a rod of rulership to keep them so that they're just like, oh, hey, this is going to be great. So they use a rod of rulership so they don't have to beat them down or chain them up. They just say, hey, don't you want to come with us? Oh, yeah, we love it. We'll come on board. So, and then they're bringing them over to the city of Vandacool. The characters need to get over to the city of Vandacool. That's their goal. Get to the city of Vandacool. But, but when they looked at what was going on, they said, we also want to rescue those prisoners. There's three dozen people on there. We don't want them to be eaten by ghouls. So let's do what we can to try to stop that. So they had sort of a main goal, which is get over to the pure city of Vandacool and a secondary goal of rescue the prisoners aboard the Phantom. And when I set this up, this is a uh, really excellent, uh, if you're looking for ship maps, ship maps that you want to use at your table paizo as part of their pathfinder flip map collection has a bunch of different ones but two of the this is one that i really love this is actually a double-sided map it's side one on one side side two on the other and it is a great big you know bigger than the normal size poster map that has a five deck ship you know three mast five deck four mast three mast five deck ship uh, on it that I think is just really, really cool. And it's perfect for a situation like this. Great big ship. You can almost do it as a dungeon crawl. It's so big that you could run this as a dungeon crawl. And I think it's even bigger than five decks. One, two, three, it's six. I think it's six decks. It's really, really big. And so when I was setting this up, I had the map. I knew what the ship looked like. What I actually did, and I, I would recommend this, particularly if you're running a game where um, you're doing it in person, is I took these pictures with my phone and then I printed them out in black and white on sheets of paper and I took a Sharpie and I wrote my own notes right on the map of the ship. So that way I had my key that I took from this one and I was able to use it right at the table. And I said, well, where are the prisoners being kept and where are the guards and where are the, you know, the, the dark cool captain. And it was like a, you had a, the dark cool captain, dark cools are like super intelligent ghoul or they're intelligent ghouls. I had a Darakul Necromancer. I had a Darakul Enchanter. Those are like the three main 
boss sort of characters, a CR 10 captain, a CR eight necromancer and a CR eight enchanter. And then I had a bunch of Dara cool, um, who were like CR four. And then I had about a dozen ghoul deckhands and they were CR twos and they all had masks on. So they wouldn't eat the prisoners because ghouls are not super intelligent. You can order them to do certain things, but generally speaking, they're not very intelligent and they would go and eat the prisoners if you, if you didn't stop them. And then I had some other things like the necromancer had a couple of bone golems. I, I did feel like that's a whole lot of undead and like a couple of turn undeads would just get rid of all of them. So I said, how about some bone golems that aren't undead? They're constructs, but they're run by the necromancer. The necromancer built these bone, bone guardians that he, that he has with them. And then they had these things called ghoul steeds, which are like really weird mutated ghouls that they can ride on like horses and there was three of those on there so i had a bunch of different guys but if you think about it monster wise it was like a dozen ghouls a half dozen dara cool i think it's going to end up being more than a half dozen dara cool i think i'm going to add a few and then three bosses the three um ghoul steeds and the two bone golem bone constructs bone bone guardians that's a lot of monster right that's way way higher than the challenge rating of the characters right there's way above it but I knew that they're all around the ship, that all these guys are around the ship, that about half the ghouls at any given time are below deck, or the other half are kind of up on the top deck, and that the bone guardians are down below, the ghoul steeds are in their pens down in the ship below, the, you know, there's some Darakul that are, that are making sure that the prisoners are staying happy, the enchanter is down there with the rod of rulership to make sure that they're staying charmed and that they're not going to go run. So I had this idea of where the inhabitants are. And then there's this question, okay, when the characters actually start to get involved, then what? What do we do? And one of the key things is that while if you were to if you were to look at the list of monsters that were here, a dozen ghouls, maybe nine Darakul, three Darakul bosses, three ghoul steeds, two bone golems, that if they were all going to get attacked at the same time, if they were going to fight all of that group at once, they'd just get killed. It's way too many. But they're all spread across the ship. So... Then you, you have to say to yourself, when the characters get involved, well, given the circumstances, which ones of these creatures would be where? The, the ghoul steeds are still going to be down below. They're not going to be up above. Same thing with the bone guardians. They're probably down below as well. But there's probably a couple of ghouls and a darakul at the different tops of the upper part of the ship. So they're, they're on lookouts, right? So there's one in the, one in the, fork, the, the, one in the, the forecastle, one in the aft castle, you know, you know, one that's up in the poop deck with a, you know, he's a, the one that's up on the, on the poop deck far up above who's masked, but he has a little kazoo that he can blow when something, he sees something. So that everybody can be like, oh, he blows the kazoo. And the character said, well, we're going to engulf the whole thing in a fog cloud. And then we're going to, I'm going to turn into a giant eagle and I'm going to try to fly and grab some and throw him in the boat. The great news is there's so many ghouls that they could totally do that. So, so the druid cast fog cloud, turned into a giant eagle and is flying through and he's grabbing ghouls and he's throwing them over the, over the side. He threw the necromancer over the side, but the necromancer would fly. But then he hit the necromancer enough times that the fly fell and the fly failed and the necromancer went into the drink. And so then I, you, you decide, given what the characters are doing, which numbers of these monsters are likely to hear about? Do one of the monsters go below decks and say, hey, a bunch of things are happening down up above that are really bad. And then, oh, well, let's go find out. They, at one point, the ghouls were all eating. They were all having a big stew of humanoid stew. And the captain was there and the necromancer was there and a couple of Darakul were there and they hit the top deck with shatter and it blew off the roof of the dining area, which meant now the captain and the necromancer and the other Darakul know what's going on and they come out and they're fighting. So you have this dynamic battle that's growing, not because you have 
intended these waves to happen, but that based on the circumstances of what's going on, the characters are getting involved in, and your monster, more of your monsters are getting involved because of what's going on. By the time they start casting Shatter, by the time they're casting these big, super loud things, everyone on the ship knows something's going on, right? That doesn't mean they're all going to attack. And it doesn't mean they know what's going on. They just know something's going on, which means there might be times where a ghoul wanders up to see what's happening. And then that ghoul gets killed really easy because there's only one ghoul. There's, you know, it's only later when the necromancer, you know, makes their way back onto the ship, but doesn't go to the top deck. He's like, twice I've been dragged off by a giant eagle. So I'm not going back up there. I'm going to go down below. And I'm going to get my bone golems and we're going to take the bone golems and I'm going to go attack with all of those that like you, you want to think about from the enemy standpoint, what would they do to react to the situation? What if you were in their shoes, what would you do? If you were a dark cool necromancer who just got dumped in the drink twice by a giant eagle, you'd probably stop going on the deck. You might say, I'm going to get a big rope and a grapple so that every time I go up there, I'm going to grapple myself to a piece of wood. So if the eagle tries to grab me and pull me away, he can't, right? You probably come up with stuff like that. So that's why I think it's really important when you're building these dynamic situations like the characters invading a big boat. It's the, the, a good rule of thumb in my mind is have lots of monsters, way many more monsters than you think the characters could handle in one battle, but not so many monsters that it doesn't make sense. You want to have enough monsters. When I sat down and figured out what the crew of this ship was like, the crew of the Phantom was like. I knew roughly how many ghouls made sense. That idea that there's maybe a couple dozen ghouls to manage three dozen prisoners as they're making their way across. That seemed to make sense to me. The other thing was complications. What were the complications? So I had two. One was the ship called the Phantom is actually possessed by a phantom, by a ghost that is a tormented Minotaur hero that one of the player characters actually knows knows as of a hero they know who this hero is well that means the characters can try to affect the ship by affecting the ghost that's possessing it to get it on their side i thought that was kind of a neat twist and that's that's a twist that's on their direction right then another twist is there's also an albino kraken that's out there in the sulfur sea that's following along and trying to eat things and that kraken might pipe up it's albino because i have a miniature for it and the miniature isn't painted so it's a white it's a pure white um, pure white um, Kraken. And I'm going to have the Kraken pop out of the water and start eating folks. And so that's a complication. Does the Kraken start to attack the ship? How do the characters get the Kraken away from the ship? Because now they don't, they need the ship intact because they're out in the middle of the sea. So they need the ship intact. They have to get rid of the Kraken, but also have to worry about the ghouls that are there too. So that's where you get these dynamic situations that, that occur. But I think that, that the, a good rule of thumb is lots of monsters who don't opt, who don't act optim, optimally is a good rule a lot of monsters who don't act optimally. So what that means is you want to put all of the monsters out there that you think makes sense for the given situation, even if it's way above the challenge rating that the characters should typically be able to handle. But the monsters don't know what's going on and they're not acting purely in an optimal standpoint. They are not configuring themselves in, a, in perfect battle groups and attacking. They're running around. They don't know about things. They're getting grabbed and thrown into drink and eaten by a Kraken, right? That you, because you have so many monsters that are doing all these things, you don't mind when a bunch of them get turned or if the characters find some crafty way to get rid of half of them. That's totally cool because you, half of those, you can, especially at higher levels, you can put the characters in these near impossible difficult encounters with the recognition that you're not acting optimally the character the monsters are not acting optimally and the characters are so they get a much bigger advantage with the things that they do so i thought it was kind of fun to dig into that situation 
Let's do some Patreon questions. So every month, patrons of Sly Flourish get to ask questions about tabletop role-playing games. I answer all of the questions every Friday morning. I cheated this last week. I did some Thursday night because I didn't have an opportunity Friday morning. I knew I wasn't going to have an opportunity to do it Friday morning, so I did it Thursday night. Generally, it's every Friday morning. I, I, I answer all the questions that are there. Some of those I bring forward here to the show and we talk about them here. Other ones become catalysts for future articles or future videos. Brad T says, I'm grappling with a challenge in my Waterdeep-based homebrew campaign. One player constantly leans towards seeking help from city authorities like the Guard Watch, Magic University, and the Temple whenever they face challenges. They argue it's realistic for a city like Waterdeep to handle such problems. Others in the group are divided on this approach, citing realism and lack of heroism as concerns. I worry it might, be, it might become the default, lessening my enjoyment as the DM. How can I encourage a more heroic approach from my players and reduce their reliance on continual external assistance or handle, handing off of responsibilities in our adventures? Many times, this is something I see a lot with all many, many questions that I get on the Patreon Q&A and discussions that we have on the Discord server, things that I've read on Reddit, other places where DMs come and typically have a problem. And I, I feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out but I don't know a better answer. And that's that the importance of having, of defining what the hero's role, what the character's role is in the game during a session zero, almost before they've built a character. If you do it before they build a character, then they, if you do it before they build a character, then they can build a character around those ideals. And an example would be in a situation like if you're doing a water deep base game, and let's say there's like a threat to water deep, right? You could have it that a core characteristic, a core bond of all of the characters is that they take personal responsibility for defending Waterdeep from the forces of evil. And you write that in your session zero notes. During your session zero, you tell them that they have this bond. They are not allowed not to have that bond. That all of the other drives and directions that they have as characters, they have. All the backgrounds, how they got together, how they join up, all of that is great. But the one thing that all of the characters share is this drive to protect Waterdeep from the forces of evil, which means they, they none of the characters would have it built in them to go talk to the town guard to handle their problems or talk to the university. It doesn't mean they can't talk to these groups. They should, but it means they take the personal responsibility to do so. And so and what, I, what, I, what I get is a lot of times when we see players who are running characters in a separate direction from where we as the GM would like them to do it, or it's separate from the other players and the other characters, a lot of time it comes down to that idea that the character that they built doesn't have the bond that ties them to what the theme of the adventure is. And I, this is one where you can just tell them. You don't have to hint it. You don't have to hide it. You don't have to bury it in the plot. You don't want them to pick it up on their own. Oh, they'll miraculously just make sure to build character. Just tell them. Tell them your characters take personal responsibility for the drives of Waterdeep. If this situation got bad enough... You could, you could sit down with them and do what they call like an in-campaign session zero, where after you've already run it, you can say, one of the things that will make this campaign really enjoyable for all of us is if all of the characters take a personal responsibility for defending Waterdeep from the forces of evil. So I know that you had a tendency to want to give that off to the guards or give it to the magicians. This game will run better if your character is taking that responsibility personally. 
And if they say, well, that's not what my character, then you do say, well, maybe you want to start with a new character that has that. And that's like a, I will kill your character if you don't do that. Kind of. It's not really a threat. But you can say, if your character is really not on board with the theme of the campaign, none of us are going to have a good time. And you probably want to build a character that is going to have a good time. My, you know, your character works with your group in, 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 you know, in companionship to prevent threats from, you know, to, to stop the threats that face Waterdeep. That's terrible, but you know what I mean? So a, a lot of these issues I think can get covered in a session zero before you've actually started running the game and before they've started building their characters and B you can stop in the middle and do it, but the best way to do it is just have them wire it in, right? That hardwire the characters, whatever they're going to do, hardwire the characters around that goal, that drive, that ambition to, to take personal responsibility to save Waterdeep from the forces of evil. That them, along with their companions, take personal responsibility for facing the forces of evil. That it just cuts a lot of yoga that you have to do to try to get the character to finally follow the plot of the adventure. Because that might never go away. They might always be like, I don't know why we're doing that. That's not our business. Now, it may not be their business if your campaign shifts. And it's, well, actually, you know, our job is to save Elturel from the forces of hell. But now we're in Baldur's Gate dealing with Baldur's Gate politics. He's like, what does that have to do with Elturel? Well, now that's your problem. If you change the course of the campaign and the characters are written around the old one, you're in a bad, you should probably figure out a way to get back to the old one. So you want to make sure that the theme that you help them inject into their character's DNA from the very beginning actually is the full theme of the campaign that they want to run because otherwise they're going to be all over the place. Chris B says, do you have any tips for running flashbacks? I ask because I haven't been very successful at running them in the past, but I'm currently running a game using a published adventure that starts off in the middle of the action. And I want to use flashbacks to give players the info on how they got where the adventure starts. Marker. Flashbacks are kind of like dream sequences. There are certain types of scenes feel like a good idea, but if you think about them, they're not great and they're not flashbacks can be tricky for a couple of reasons one is flashbacks aren't progress that flashbacks are not actually moving the story forward they're catching you up to the current state of the story of the story they're telling you why you are where you are but they're not moving you ahead typically there's probably ways that you can do flashbacks that do but typically they're not moving things ahead also flashbacks already happened the events that are in the flashback already happened which means the characters don't have any agency to change the things that are in those flashbacks. So if you're injecting flashbacks into your game, you're often telling them what happened. And that's boring. No, Players don't want to hear things that their characters did. They want to do things. They want to do stuff with their characters. And they want to move the story forward. So even when you do things like dream sequences or flashbacks where the characters can actually be involved in the battle, I've done that where you know there's a battle that took place and the players get to fight in that battle. But in the back of the minds of the players, they know that, well, this battle doesn't matter because it already happened. This already occurred. Whatever we do in that battle doesn't matter because we know where we are and we know what has to happen next. So it, it, it's one of those things. It's like I had, a, I had a friend who told me that he hated shows that had dream sequences and he hated flashbacks. He hated the show Highlander. I was like, the whole show Highlander is 50% flashbacks. And he was like, yeah, but it's none of those move the story forward. None of the flashbacks actually matter to the story that's going forward. I, I still think Highlander was great. And it's different when you're doing a TV show because the TV show is going in one direction. And you're also telling things to the 
viewer so sometimes flashbacks matter because it's like why does duncan mcleod think that this certain thing is true well it's because he was hanging out with his old friend fritz hugh Fitzcairn, who told him about this thing back in the 1700s and they're hanging around hugh Fitzcairn was played by uh, roger daltrey of the who which i thought was very fun so flashbacks can kind of work in, in, in when they're done well in tv shows and in, in things because you are giving information to the viewer but remember the viewer is passive in those in our rpgs our players are not passive they are characters they are making choices they are making decisions and it can be really hard to incorporate flashbacks in a way that is meaningful in our twitch chat people are bringing yes but what about the flashbacks and blades in the dark and that's different flashbacks and blades in the dark are player driven flashbacks the player is the one who says i'm going to flash back to this moment where i had already talked to this guard it turns out he's a friend of mine and he's going to give me the one finger salute and i'm able to go walk through this gate without even having to do a check that's totally different a that is agency given to the players the players are driving the flashback in that circumstance and you know and it is it is something that they get also it's not like that's going to take a half hour that's a flashback in blades in the dark is like the equivalent of a turn in a combat scene in another rpg it's very very quick so i would be careful about flashbacks i would i would try to recognize that flashbacks are not typically moving the story forward and they also have a tendency of not giving agency to the players and neither of those things are particularly fun so it doesn't mean you can't use them it doesn't mean like never go near them they're not a third rail but you want to know what they are and know what they're not and and above all keep it you better have a good reason to do it and keep it fast because you really want your players to be moving and propelling the story forward that they're in and making choices in doing so. Ben H says, my party was headed for a fight against a large pirate crew that was ravaging the Sword Coast and sent letters to cities they've helped during the adventure to send ships to help with the fight. I'm a bit unsure how to deal with it mechanically and don't want to deflate the fight by having random ships come. How do you logistically or narratively deal with parties trying to set up a Deus Ex Mechana for themselves? So this gets into the, the how do you deal with a war or how do you deal with a bigger situation that's going on with the characters of one group. And the best thing that I have found for this is to do it in the background. So you might say, if you know that there's a large pirate crew, and I'm going to assume that's more than one ship, right? Let's, let's assume the pirates have more than one ship. If they only have one ship, maybe you get more. And maybe they have these other ships. And because the characters were successful in convincing the cities to help them, and you might have them roll checks to do so. Again, you want the characters to be making choices and, and making checks to see how well they do. And so even if they're writing a letter to a city, maybe that they still roll a charisma check with the letter to see how influential it was with whoever received it on the other end. And if it's very influential, then maybe some other ships go. But how you handle that in the situation itself is in the backdrop, right? It's the background of the scene. It is the, you know, it's the layers that exist behind the scene where one group is just throwing shells and the other group is throwing shells and it's going on. And you don't, you're not rolling dice. You're not having the players get involved. You're just describing that while you guys are battling the pirates on the main ship, you look over to the side and you see the ship from El, oh, not, not El Terrell, Daggerford. Daggerford's not even on the coast. Um, you know, Waterdavian ships are beginning to go and the Waterdavian ships are engaging with the pirates. And because you did so well on your charisma check, it looks like they sent a lot of ships and it's winning. So that is a fantastic way to uh, run it in the background. And because they ran their checks before, you can, you can decide how big an impact it had, how, how well it did, and that that will have a big effect 
on on the uh, situation that's going on. But uh, so I would not worry about it mechanically. I would focus. I think you know five e five e games work best when you're focused on the set of specific characters the choices that they're making and what they're doing that's in front of them. It doesn't mean they can't have these bigger effects, but you run that off screen. And I've done this with many games and I've had a really good time with it where the characters have done things. I did it a lot in my Numenera game where they had entire armies that they convinced to fight on their side. And then we describe off screen like what those big armies did. And they would see the results of that they had made based on these choices. Holy cow, look, we completely destroyed that other army on the other side because we did these other things back in the past we got this army and they did all these things that's where it really matters but it doesn't have to be handled mechanically you don't have to roll dice for it you don't have to come up with a subsystem for it handle it in the background there's so so much this is another big one in the same way that many it feels like and again i could be wrong and it could turn out that no the session zero doesn't help you near as much as you think it does but i've seen it work for me i've heard other dms talk about how it's worked for them i've seen many other dms offer the same advice i offer so i don't think i'm that far off that in many circumstances when you're having these these issues of characters who are not tied in closely with the adventure that the best way to handle that is the session zero before they build their character the second best session is second best time is now stop do that baseline in the same way i hear lots of people that have these kinds of problems or these sort of bigger dynamic things they what subsystem should i put in place or if we have a big dragon war that's happening outside the dragon temple that the the, the, the the temple of tiamat that rose up and all these dragons are fighting what mechanics should i use for that what should i it's so just handle in the background focus on the characters and let the rest handle itself in the background don't bother to roll a system for it base it on what results the characters chose and and go with that Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. I hope you enjoyed this show. If you like this show and you want to see more stuff from me, if you want more stuff like this, the best way to see all the stuff that I do is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. There is a link down in the show notes. You can subscribe for absolute, it's absolutely free to subscribe. You get a free adventure generator PDF and you get a, what else do you get? marker and you get an article sent directly to your inbox every week you can also become a patron of sly flourish patrons get access to a dedicated discord server the monthly q a uncovered secrets volume one and two the city of arches source book a whole bunch of exclusive adventures and a whole lot of other tools to help you run your game uh, and you can pick up any of my books including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion at the sly flourish bookstore links for all that are in the show notes thank you all so much have a great day and get out there and play an rpg